near-death experience, which is what I had over a prolonged period of time. It was it was like a, like having cancer or something, except that I didn't have any loving people around me trying to make me better. I had people that were actively trying to make things worse. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. In the fall of 2012, Theo Padnos, who grew up in Woodstock, Vermont, was working as a freelance journalist in Turkey. He made a fateful decision to trust two men who promised to arrange safe passage for him into Syria, where he hoped to report on the civil war that had begun a year earlier. It was a catastrophically bad decision. His supposed helpers turned out to be working with Jabhat al-Nusra, the main affiliate of al-Qaeda in Syria. Upon crossing the border into Syria, he was beaten and kidnapped by the men. He spent the next two years in secret prisons being tortured by his captors. One of the ways he consoled himself was to write a novel set in Vermont. But during his captivity, other journalists captured in Syria were either executed or disappeared. Finally, in August 2014, Padnos was released with the help of officials from Qatar. Padnos has a new book about his experience, Blindfold, a memoir of capture, torture, and enlightenment, which was just reviewed in the New York Times. I began by asking Theo Padnos to explain the meaning of his book's title. I mean, Blindfold for me was a, it was like a metaphor for, um, the way that they attempted, my kidnappers and captors, attempted to like tamp down my senses and make them um, not function. You know, they put me in a dark room where I didn't know if it was day or night. Um, they, um, I, I, it wasn't only that I couldn't see, it was like they didn't let me know what time of day it was. Um, they didn't let me know where I was. And eventually, you know, over time, you start forgetting who you are. That's really the purpose of this exercise, by the way. It's to, you're meant to disorient yourself and, and to go through a kind of a near-death experience, to die to your previous self and to wake up as somebody new. And so all the prisoners, and indeed, I think, um, everybody who lives in an Islamic state for long enough, you repudiate your old identity. The reason for this is because they assume that you've grown up in worldliness and sin, and you're meant to um, discard all that, repudiate that, put that behind you, and to wake up into some new, um, a new self, you know, and a new legal dispensation for the community, and a new orientation towards God. Um, so they did this to me, um, you know, to, in order to, um, because they were certain, and they were correct in this respect. I had lived a, like a, a worldly life. I had, um, you know, quested after money and things and girls. And you're not supposed to do this as a Muslim. You know, you're supposed to focus on God. Hmm. Um, and so they wanted, they wanted like a spiritual um, evolution to occur within me, which kind of did happen. Um, such, such that I would um, discard the trivial parts of of my life and focus on the stuff that's important. They think what's important is, is God. It's right and wrong. It's how you behave. So let's talk about the part of your life that you were to discard all the way back to growing up in Woodstock, sure. Vermont. Sure. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. I mean, the reason why I became a reporter was because I initially had wanted to be like an academic, a professor at a university, and I failed at that although I think most people fail at that and with good, for good reasons, because it, it's a, um, 
let's just say that my own experience in graduate school did not lead me to loving books. I wanted to escape and get out into the world. And so when I finished a PhD at, um, at UMass Amherst at Amherst Mass, I, um, I basically got on a plane and I went to Yemen in order to expand my horizons and to learn Arabic and study the religion of Islam. It was 2004. Uh, George Bush had just been elected president. I was like, I can't handle this. Cannot live in a country with that lunatic in charge. So I went up to Yemen in order to understand um, you know, the culture uh, that we were beginning to wage war against. It was the beginning of the Iraq war. And um, I just knew the other reporters, um, well, they were going to, I felt that I could do a better job than those reporters who were reporting on Iraq. But I felt that in order to do that better job, first I had to study Arabic and then I had to study Islam. And that took me almost 10 years. Hmm. So in between 2004 and 2011, I was like studying Islam and also trying to be a reporter. But mostly it was studying Islam because you cannot break into the reporting world from Yemen. You try, people do try. And sometimes it works a little bit, but it's best to be at a cocktail party in New York. You know, it's best to go to graduate school in something useful like journalism. But one thing you cannot do is hang around the cat market in, in Yemen, however, or, or the mosque in Yemen. However, if you do um, take this more unorthodox approach, you learn about Yemen. You learn about Why Arabic did you choose Yemen? And in the whole Middle East, Yemen is the poorest war-torn place it, it's yeah, uh, it wasn't war-torn at the time and it, they gave me the most gorgeous reception it remains like the most happiest most beautiful time of my life my time in yemen it was like three years um the people are just delighted to receive you and everybody is gracious and lovely to you there was no physical or any kind of danger to me um so I, and i also just want to uh point out to to listeners you you grew up in Woodstock Vermont attended Middlebury College is that right yep 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 so you first, uh, first yeah. I yeah I went to high school in Putney and then um and then college in Middlebury and then I went to graduate school in Amherst so jumping ahead to 2012 right. you decide to you know fulfill your dream of being a reporter in the Middle East right and you try to pitch stories none of them get taken up by any editors so then you just get on a plane and go to turkey and go to a town on the syrian border that's right well what did you what did you hope would happen on the border of syria (laughs) i mean i hoped and believed that some editor out there would read my pitch and say gee this enterprising young person theo appears to be on the syria turkish border and he's got such great ideas and what an enterprising young man he is and how clever and doesn't he write well and i'll send him off for a few hundred bucks into Syria and he'll write me a beautiful essay and that'll be great. You know, so that had, part about sending you into Syria, did you have any concerns about going into a country that at that time was uh, a, about a year into a civil, not a, yeah. civil, a civil war? I had lived in Syria um, in between 2008 and 2011. So I had ridden my bike around much of the area that is now currently occupied by um, it's uh, quasi-terrorist organization called Ahayat Tahrir al-Sham. It's the new version of Jabhat al-Nusra. It's a version of Al-Qaeda. So I had ridden my bike through the villages uh, on the high plains north of Aleppo, which are just along the Turkish border. It's a gorgeous place for bike riding and uh, ancient um, you know, Roman ruins and the oldest 
church, maybe perhaps one of the oldest churches in the world, is up there. It's just a gorgeous, gorgeous, lovely place. And the people were heartbreakingly receptive and lovely to me when I rode my bike in between 2008, 2011. 2011, 2012, the government, the Syrian government begins to collapse and is finally really collapsed in July of 2012 in that region. And I went in in um, October of 2012. And you did not go in thinking, under what pretext, what, what, why did you cross the border from well, Syria, I, uh, from Turkey? A ton of reporters at the time were doing this. I was the first, I, I was the second reporter to disappear, but the first one to disappear in this area. Um, the reason, the, the danger at the time for reporters, everyone believed, was the Syrian government of Bashar al-Assad. And uh, the rebels, in principle, were friendly to Westerners because we were supporting the revolution. We believed that the rebels needed to be um, armed and and basically supported in in any way possible. And so we were funding and encouraging them um, against the government of Bashar al-Assad, I I assumed. And and so tell me about the day that you crossed into Syria thinking you were going on your own terms, but were in fact kidnapped. Yeah, I mean, I met some nice young men in um, Antakya, Turkey, which is a border town, former uh, papal seat of Antioch. Um, And they seemed like nice young men. They said, we are media fixers. We're going, we help Western journalists um, arrange itineraries within Syria. We keep them safe during this time. We bring them back to Turkey after a few days. I said, sounds good. I said, how much do you want to, you want for for this excursion that you're going to arrange for me? And they said, nothing. I was strapped for cash at the time. And I was like, that's my price. Did nothing. I love did that. Did you think for a moment that this could be a trap? No. <laughs> no, I had had such lovely experience with uh, Syrians um, to, to date um, that I believed that, um, no, I didn't. I, I thought that the danger was from the Syrian government at the time. Right. So yeah. what happened when you crossed into Syria with these guys? I mean, they were cordial with me at first. They were rather silent and distant. And um, I spent the first night uh, with them in like this abandoned house. And in the morning we woke up and um, we drank some coffee and they took me through a town, the town of Binish, which is a revolutionary capital still under the control of Jabhat al-Nusra. And, um, you know, we had some coffee, we took some photographs, one of which they sent me um, shortly after they kidnapped me. They sent to my email account, I discovered years later. Um, and um, we, they took me to another abandoned house we, they pretended to film a kind of an interview with me as they were interviewing me at that point. Um, I was like the allegedly some kind of a, you know prominent journalist, although I really wasn't. And they were they were going to interview me. Really, what they wanted to do was to film the scene of them kidnapping me and turning the tables on me, which they did do. Somewhere did out there do. in in Jebat land exists a film of me beginning an interview just like this. I think, oh, there's a nice guy. I'm gonna chat with him. And in the middle of the interview, they, they stood up and one of the guys goes, let's go boys. And um, all four of them in the room walked over and they began to just like beat me mercilessly with cables and, and uh, a pistol. And in the middle of this beating, um, they're stamping on my chest and hitting me in the head with their fists and their feet. And I heard somebody said, which means uh, bring the handcuffs. Now this word is not the word that, it's not a kind of word you would stumble across in your normal Arabic, um, uh, like introductory courses. 
And I, it was on the periphery of my consciousness. But as soon as I heard it, I was like, that's what that means, handcuffs. Suddenly I was in handcuffs behind my back and I was, blood was streaming down my face. And somebody said, you are our prisoner now. Is another word I had not heard before. Asirna, asirna they said. I'm like, I, I understood like, um, I, I understood what was going on, obviously. Um, but anyway, they, the other word they used at that point was a word called ghanima, which means a war booty. So they emptied my pockets and they, they, I had like 50 bucks in cash and I had an iPhone. And they looked at the iPhone and they go, this is ghanima. This is our, what we're entitled to by the laws of God. We're entitled, you are a prisoner and we're entitled to take your property. And this is lawful and sanctioned by God. Suddenly, um, you know, I was operating under... Uh, like a new legal dispensation that I had not been aware that this this thing existed. But in fact, it, it really did exist. I had wandered without knowing a thing into a caliphate. It was a proper functioning caliphate at the time, as I learned over subsequent days. I wasn't the only, I was hardly the only prisoner. And all my fellow prisoners were being punished for religious crimes, like their most egregious or, or um, to them, you know, the most. And what um, is, what is a caliphate? It's a dream is what it is. It's a dream of uh, um, perfect equality among men, of um, everybody living in harmony with the Quran and with one another and with God and close to the land. And they I mean, would it declare is a, a caliphate is essentially an area of control that they were in control of. Yeah, you could say it's a state. Among yeah. other things, it's a state. But it, even before it's a state, a physical state, it's a state of mind. And I wandered into the state of mind and it was like, Everybody was with was carrying out their daily lives according to this law and within this state of mind. And in fact, you know, it's it's arguably an improvement over Bashar al-Assad in some ways, and that everybody believed there's a single in a caliphate. When you have a legal dispute, you will submit the dispute to a religious person, and that person will be a man of learning, and he will then refer your um, the matter to the sacred text and God in the end will be the judge. So of course, this in fact was Al-Qaeda, a group associated with Al-Qaeda. I mean, it was a very informal assemblage of religious men from all different factions, but the people in charge were the people who eventually went on to, to form either Al-Qaeda or ISIS. It was a big now, happy in-grouping of terrorists. At the same time, uh, another American journalist was kidnapped, James Foley, but he was kidnapped by ISIS. So talk about the different out the difference between Al-Qaeda and ISIS and the difference in what happened to you and what happened to James Foley. Right. Well, um, Foley was kidnapped in the town of Benish that I had passed through on my way into, um, into Syria um, by probably the same people that got me. Um, um, you know, we don't really know exactly what happened to Foley, but, um, but anyway, at the time, there were a few important terrorist figures in Syria, and they were all working together. Subsequently, they had a divorce, and one side of the um, marriage said, I'm going to call myself Al-Qaeda, and the other side said, I'm going to call myself the Islamic State. But as anybody who has participated in these movements knows, um, the philosophy that governs the movement and the, is exactly the same. And the way they treat the prisoners is the same. And, um, you know, their contempt for outsiders, for non-Muslims, for women, and their, the abuse that they deal out to children and anybody who doesn't agree with them, it's all the same. So functionally, it's, it's the same thing. But there were two separate commanders. Eventually, um, 
they had a divorce, really, they argued over the proceeds of the oil that they were stealing from the Syrian government. So they had a divorce and, and um, what happened with Foley? We were in the same prison, we never saw each other, but we were in the same facility. And uh, during the divorce, um, the, the side that um, eventually took hold of Foley said, I want the prisoners from that room. The uh, side that took hold of me said, I want the prisoners from that room. I happen to be in that room. The reason why I'm alive and he's dead is because just the luck of the draw. It's he, one half of the prison went one way, the other half went the other way. And, and James uh, Foley was famously beheaded by ISIS on video, very gruesome. Right. Um, and you remained in prison to be tortured. Uh, it sounds like continue. By the way, he, he also went through the exact same nonsense that I went through for two years. You know, he survived for, he was taken in October, no, November of 2012, and he was killed in August of 2014. So I was taken in October of 2012, and I was released in um, August of 2014. So we lived through the exact same time period in prison, and I'm sure we lived through very similar kinds of tortures. It's just that after all this pain and suffering, I had a beautiful, like dreamlike second life and he, he was killed, you know? Um, so what, is, uh, what happened to you during your two years of captivity? I mean, I, I think in the beginning they submitted me to the regime, to a kind of regime that is designed to transform your psychology. It's to, divorce you from whoever you used to be and to create a new human being. It's how they make the suicide bombers. You know, you really repudiate that person that you used to be. You don't like that. You don't want to go back there. And I, and I renounced my past, by the way. I didn't want to, I wanted to live, but I wasn't at all persuaded that they would allow me to come back to Vermont. And I, you know, at a certain point, I just, if they had said, you can live outside the prison and, and like sweep up the stairway in front of the person, I would have done it happily. Yeah, because I wanted to live. I wanted food to eat and I wanted to see the sunshine. I wanted to listen to a birdie. So um, I, I wanted to drink water and they weren't giving me water. So if they had said, we're gonna let you drink and we're gonna let you eat, but you have to sweep up the stairs, I would have said, thank God I can sweep the stairs. So instead you, know, it, 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 you were electrocuted, you were beaten with- They did a lot of this, they did a lot of this, but eventually it, it um, you want me to tell you why, why they do these kinds of things? Um, in my personal opinion, it's not like they ever confided. I don't think they themselves know, but the torture, um, which they do to all of their um, inmates and to many of their own family members for as punishment, you know, if you do something wrong, that the function of this is to galvanize the psychology of the torturers. <laughs> the torture victim, either they're gonna kill him or, um, or he's a lost cause as they figured I was a lost cause. I wasn't even a Muslim. Um, but there are many people within the families of these um, aspiring governors of a caliphate who are uncertain and doubting and suspicious and skeptical. And when you take a young person into a darkened environment, there are bombs falling over all over the place, um, you know, to get to this first prison, which was a hospital that uh, I, I lived in in Syria, you had to go through a, a bombing barrage of artillery from the Syrian government. I mean, I was amazed that our car didn't get blown up. It seemed to me I was in a blindfold, of course, as I was approaching this facility. But as we were driving into it, it seemed to me that the bombs were exploding on all sides and, you know, almost within our car. And we were screeching around. The tires were, were screeching. And um, it was just amazing to me that we finally arrived at this facility when we were, 
when we had arrived at the facility that I lived in for like six months, the first six months, I heard the bombs, you know, maybe 200 meters away and I happened to be in a basement, but I felt that I was about to get blown up, you know, even in that basement frequently. How did you anyway. mentally persevere and endure through two years? <laughs> yes, I did all that. But I want to tell you like the function of this, this torture, um, which is that, in, in my opinion, you, know, you get these kids that the bombs are falling all over the place. The, um, there's men of great religious authority in the room. They're not necessarily carrying out the torture, but they are watching and they are sanctifying it with their presence. Long, holy beards, these robes. And, um, you know, there's an interrogator and there are children and the children are carrying out the actual torture. They're applying the electricity and the old people and the, the interrogator, they say to the kids, they're like, this person, he's a kafir. He doesn't believe in God at all. You know, he does he pray? Does he pray? No. This is what happens to the kafir. Do you want to be like that, you kid? Kid goes, no. You know, people are hanging from their, their wrists by the ceiling pipes. Um, they're, uh, they're screaming for God. You know, they, they do get, they get religion when they're hanging from their um, wrists by the ceiling, like hooks from the ceiling. They're screaming, la ilaha illallah, there is no God but God. And the, and the um, interrogator says to the kids, you, you put that electricity to that kafir. You do that. And the kid's like, no, I don't want to do it. And um, the dad goes, you do it. And eventually the kid does it. And when he does it, that it, it, it jolts him out of his everyday experience. It, you are into something new and dark and dangerous. And it transforms the psychology of a child. Mm. It makes that kid, you know, he went into that room, perhaps the son of his mom. And he comes out like a warrior. He's, he's really the child of his dad. He's a man. And he comes out, he's ready to kill. Um, and and he's, he's full of righteous feeling. I'm, I'm on the side of the good people. And I'm punishing the, the people that want to destroy this beautiful thing. Now, what is this beautiful thing? It's Islam. For them, Islam is like apple pie and baseball and, um, you know, everything that we cherish and love that we find sweet and beautiful in our world. They find that in Islam with good reason, because Islam is beautiful and lovely and it does provide comfort and, and solace to millions, billions of people across the globe. So no, we, just, we just have a few minutes and I, I want to be sure to get to what enabled you to endure all this and to survive. What were the thoughts in your mind that you could take some solace in or how do you get through that? Um, I mean, I, the reason I, I hate to sound glib, but the reason why I survived is because they didn't kill me. They killed a lot of people in my prisons and they walk in one day and they simply they either execute the people or um, they beat them to death. Sometimes they starve them to death. So um, the reason why I survived is because they continued to give me food. They did not shoot me and no bombs fell on my head. I, they also died for this reason. Um, like the Syrian government is bombing the places where these people conduct their business. So I survived you know, by chance, but I came through mentally intact, more or less, I believe, because um, at a certain point, they, 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 like the physical abuse, it didn't altogether cease, but it lessened. And I was able to carve out a sort of a safe space for myself and my cell. Uh, like a year and a half into it, they gave me a pen and a paper and I started to write a story, um, which was about Vermont. And uh, it was about a rebellion, like, a, like an insurgency in, uh, in Vermont. And I, I, was, um, I needed to, to explain to myself what had happened, not only to me, but to the society in which I was living. Like, how could this, the whole society was so transformed by this insurgency that had taken over the landscape and the 
Um, so I needed to explain to myself, how can you take a person, transform him? How can you take a society and transform it? And I think through the writing of this book, yes, I was able to like heal myself a little bit. And when I came out, my mom was, said, go see a shrink. You must be screwed up by these horrible kind of people. And I did go see the shrink for a little while, but I found it, it was like, it was very emotional to talk about all this for me. I was crying a lot and I didn't want to um, cry in front of the shrink like vent my emotions in front of the shrink when I had this beautiful book that I was all focused on writing about. And I wanted to put my emotions into the book, which, which by the way, I think I did. Yeah. It's an emotional book. I mean, I was just reading a little bit of it. Not the one I, the one that we're talking about, it's called blindfold. And this is a like recounts my ordeal, but the one I wrote in prison is about a society that is overcome by an insurgency, something like what we saw at the Capitol a few weeks ago. And what is it like to live with inside a culture that, um, Im imagine if that had, had succeeded, let's say if the people had taken over a smaller part of the, um, the landscape and they set up their own little government, what would it be like to live inside that thing? I don't think it would be great. You know, Do you, does, that's very interesting to sort of uh, extrapolate from our own recent, you know, you know the it's very similar. It's very similar thing. Lots of guns and pickup trucks in Syria and um, great economic injustice and people with, uh, with profound, deep uh, convictions about how things ought to be run. And they want to drag things back to, in Syria, it's old time religion. And here it's like, let's bring it back to the constitution. You know, we don't need all these um, bureaucrats. Do you think that kind of thing could happen here? We have, we have such a strong legal system. We have a strong civic society. We have associations. We have like cooperative leagues. We, we get along basically. Um, but listen, guns are a dangerous force and um, isolation is a dangerous force. And the fake media are like the um, misinformation that we have a very powerful current of in our country. They have it 10 times worse. Um, but there are similar things certainly between us and them. If, if things get really bad here, they would have to get really bad. But yes, we, we started down the road that Syria is like 50 miles. They're, they're way, way down there. Mm. But, but we have trends and um, things that could be exaggerated to, to have a similar outcome as, as is happening in Syria now. Hmm. How did you finally get released? The way I got released, not that I'm really party to these details, I kind of had to piece it together afterwards because I was just hanging out basically in a locked room. But um, my mom and my cousins here in um, New England um, were in touch with the Qatari government. Now, the Qatari government is, is like a good actor in this in that they rescue people, but a bad actor in that they have been sponsoring the rebels for a long time and giving these people guns that we would never permit on our own streets. Really high powered, high tech weaponry systems that can blow tanks out of the, off the streets and are designed for that. So we, we pumped all these weapons into this country um, really with the, with like the approval and sanction of the US government, um, you know, it was the Obama administration, but anyway, this is what we did. I think that the Qataris were like, geez, we've been sponsoring these rebels. Some rebels have gone rogue. Now they're taking these Americans, James Foley and Peter Kasich and Steve Stotloff and Theo. And, um, you know, we can't get in touch with these guys. Well, the ISIS people, the Qataris were trying to, every day they're calling up the ISIS guys. Hey, can you help us with Peter and James and Stephen? And the ISIS guys were not answering the phone. The Jebet the Nusra people did answer the phone. 
So when they your finally captors, the, El Nusra, yeah, my, my guys, captors, yeah. they finally answered the phone and Qatari said, hey, how much, how much you guys need for old Theo? And they're like, you know, a few million would do it. Qatari's like, no problem. A few million is nothing for them. So, so I expect the, I, I heard through the grapevine within Jebatanusa that it was like 11 million euros that they got for me, which is enough to sponsor the jihad in Syria for generations because they spend like two falafel balls a day on mm. keeping the army going. So I really have sponsored terrorism for a long period of time. <coughs> I feel it's a horrible thing that I did to the nation of Syria, you know, because these people are, they're just, they're not, the terrorists, they, they want to create a terrorist society and they call it a nice, loving Islamic society, but it's a terrorist society. What did you feel at that moment? You were released on in the Golan Heights, the border mm -hmm. with Israel, right. to a UN, uh, UN soldiers who then handed you to Americans. What did you feel at that moment after the two-year ordeal you had suffered? I mean, I had been, I had erected such emotional barbed wire around myself. I hadn't cried at all for two years. And um, I wasn't sure that I could really let myself go with the UN people. They were, they were just soldiers doing a job and I was anxious to not. Let, and then I, within minutes, I was in the hands of the FBI and staff from the US embassy in Tel Aviv. They had come all the way up to the Golan Heights to rescue me. And even then I was a little bit hesitant but um, I think maybe when I finally got on the plane and the stewardess put her hand on my knee and she said, I know what you've been through. I just couldn't stop crying when she said that to me. I, and you know, over the following days, I just would burst into tears kind of randomly because I finally was able to let my guard down. I was thinking, I'm, I'm, they're not gonna kill me. You know, when I first got to Israel, I would look at these Jewish guys and I would think maybe you're just a terrorist disguised as a Jew. What do I know? I, I, I wasn't going to be friendly to that guy at all. But after, you know, <laughs> I went back to Cambridge, Mass, and I came back to Woodstock, and I'm like, these people, they're probably not going to kill me. So I was, all they had to do was just hug me, and I started to cry. <laughs> so you were released in 2014, uh, seven years ago, just about seven years ago. What are the lingering effects of your experience today? I mean, <laughs> to be honest, I think that... Uh, a near-death experience, which is what I had over a prolonged period of time, it was it was like a, like having cancer or something, except that I didn't have any loving people around me trying to make me better. I had people that were actively trying to make things worse. Um, but yeah, I, I, it it probably most survivors of these near-death experiences they cherish life more, they want to live more, they they are more, um, you know, they're not going to sweat the small stuff. You don't want to get in an argument over a parking space when you've been worried about can I can I drink a glass of water? It's like anytime some guy wants my parking space from now until I die, probably just says, "Go ahead, man, it's yours." I'm not going to argue over silly stuff, um, and I'm also going to cherish and appreciate the loving people that I find who are all over the place. By the way, you know, I, I probably at first one of the reasons why I allowed myself to go into Syria was because I was indifferent to the love and affection that so many people were showing me. And I just didn't care. I was involved in my own little projects. And so I, you know, I, you have to let people love you and love them back in return. Like this is, these are the lessons that I learned in this respect, like torture and suffering in the Al Qaeda prison is good, was good 
it was it was a tonic for my um, depression that I was having at the time, and not that I recommend it to anybody, but no, I think overall, psychologically speaking, it it oriented me in a you know in a healthy direction. Why did you um, write, or what did you hope to accomplish in writing Blindfold, which you know you recount in graphic detail the torture and suffering that you went through? Right. Um, well, among other things, like I'm not really, I, I, I want people to understand my story, but I really feel that my, I am a victim of the, the war in Syria. And there are so many victims of this war. And of course, my dream is that there will be peace in Syria and that all the victims of this war, that, you know, somehow I can speak on their behalf because the stuff they do in the rebel prisons, the same stuff they do in the government prisons, you know, the country needs help. And, we, and if, if I'm, I'm, my most cherished dream is that um, there will be peace in Syria. And I'm, and I have some, I'm certain that there's, that this can happen. It's like, we often say that um, the Shiite minority in Syria is called the Alawites. So the Alawites and the Sunnis, we often say they can't possibly get along, but that's not true. They live together just as Catholics and Protestants have lived together for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, and they are perfectly capable of getting along. They need some support and help from the outside world. And at the moment we are, um, we have like cut them off from the world in so many different ways. So we need to re-invite them into the family of nations and resume, take their students into our universities. I can't tell you how hard I've been trying to get our universities to like open themselves up to Syrian students and you know, they're too busy to answer my emails, the stupid professors. And I hate, by the way, for being so indifferent to the plight of the Syrian students. Um, what are you doing now, Theo? <laughs> I got to finish my novel about uh, that I began in my jail cell. That's really my project at the moment. And of course, I've got to go off and ski in the backwoods. <laughs> I'm going to ride my bike and play tennis and do the things that I'm so lucky that, you know, all my fellow prisoners, almost all of them cannot do. Well, Theo Padnos, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I really appreciate the chance to talk to you. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this in all shows at vtdigger.org slash Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.